clinical diagnosis is more like the work of a detective than a scientist. You've got to get the evidence, but you've also got to question it. And in terms of history taking, you've got to question it because the history is the remembered past. And we all know, we all recognize that clients change their chat every time. You ask them a question from a different angle, they'll give you a different version of it. So when you're making a diagnosis based predominantly on the history, you've got to really question that and not just take it as verbatim that it is the absolute truth. Welcome to the Vet Times Podcast, a concise, weekly, topical, clinical podcast from the people behind Veterinary Times. Making a diagnosis can be tricky enough, particularly so for lameness, but is there another way of doing things? Ross Allen thinks so and tells us more in this Vet Times Podcast. Welcome to another Vet Times Podcast. We're joined today by Ross Allen, and we're going to be talking about diagnosing companion animal lameness, and he's got some ideas on this. So how are things for you, Ross? Are you okay? Things are good, Paul. Yeah, thanks. Great stuff. Good stuff. So starting off, tell us a bit about the traditional method for making lameness diagnoses, and what are the shortcomings? Right. Well, it's all drummed into the university, isn't it? You know, the, the way to make a diagnosis, and it comes down to uh, what we do is take a history, we talk to the clients, and it's often said that 90% of the diagnosis is in, in the history itself. We do the physical examination, check over the patients, and then we talk about what tests we want to do. And we generally start off with the simple things, but now there is a plethora of tests that can be used. So we use them to help um, you know, get a, a handle of what's going on. And often those tests will be based on a list of differentials that we've compiled after taking the history and doing the physical exam. So we'd, we'd form a diagnosis um, from that information. That's what we traditionally do, but maybe it doesn't work quite right all the time. Okay. And how does human medicine do things? And can veterinary medicine learn a thing or two from them? Right. Well, I think one of the things I wanted to get across in the article, Paul, is that it's, you know, in, in vet medicine, I think, and I, I, maybe I'm plagued with this, I don't know, but the, the idea that I think I don't get everything right all the time, all right? And I think quite often that congresses or CPD or articles, there's a lot of, you know, excellence out there and there's a lot of talk about gold standard, a phrase that is hotly debated. But in human medicine, there's far more of an appreciation that they don't always get the diagnosis correct. I mean, that's quite concerning, but I think it's an awareness of that concern and an understanding of that. So there are studies that are done and it's well recognised that in human medicine, they've done these secret shopper studies where they've taken patients that they know have a particular medical diagnosis and they've sent them to a GP or to a consultant in that speciality. And generally, the diagnosis will be incorrect. They won't get the diagnosis in between 13 and 15% of patients. That's quite frightening. That's a high number. And also on second review, so even if the, the GP or the, the medical practitioner is given the actual um, visual information, you know, such as the x-rays, the CT scan, the cytology, even if they're given all of that information, they will still miss what are termed critical abnormalities in around 2 to 5% of patients. So even if you have all the information that you could possibly have, even in human medicine that has, you know, probably greater resources than inventive medicine, diagnosis still isn't perfect each and every time. Right, okay. So how and where can veterinary surgeons adapt their professional narrative for lameness diagnosis, would you say? So I think lameness diagnosis, they can adapt the narrative, but I think it's also something that potentially we can adapt the narrative for any of the patients, any diagnosis we're making. I think the, the, there's various dangers. And I think the key thing is that uh, we need to be aware of these dangers and almost mindful when we're explaining to owners about the, the diagnosis. So to take a, a lameness example, the one that I mentioned in the article is about cruciate ligaments. It's a diagnosis we make in general practice each and every day. It's something we operate on frequently throughout the week. 
But in my experience, about 1% of the cruciate referrals that are sent my direction will, um, you know, they're referred to the vote of any pre-referral x-ray is done, and about 1% of them will have an osteosarcoma, all right? So they'll have a nasty disease process going on there that the owners will naturally and understandably be upset about. And I think for not just for cruciate referrals, but I think for any sort of lameness diagnosis, it makes sense to maybe use some phrases and put in some phrases such as like the most likely diagnosis is or well, there are other possible causes. Uh, what's most likely will be happening is just not to overcommit ourselves. And this isn't because we shouldn't be confident about the diagnoses we can make and about um, you know our clinical abilities, but it's just I think owners need to understand that there's always other things can be done and until we've done the test to narrow it down accurately, and even when we've done them, there could be other things going on. So I think having that narrative for the client and talking about that is important. And I think in terms of the clients who are talking to them, that the first part of any diagnosis we mentioned at the start there is the history taking. And what's been said in human medicine, I think that's a great quote, is that um, you know clinical diagnosis is more like the work of a detective than a scientist. You've got to get the evidence, but you've also got to question it. Okay, And in terms of history taking, you've got to question it because... History, you know, the history is the remembered past. And we all know, we all recognize that clients change their chat every time. You ask them a question from a different angle, they'll give you a different version of it. You'll have a, a family member in the room often, they'll give you a different version of it. So when you're making a diagnosis based predominantly on the history and also the clinical exam, but especially the history, you've got to really question that and take your time to narrow it down and, and not just take it as verbatim that it is the absolute truth. Sure. We've alluded to it a couple of times, but this podcast is sort of aimed to accompany an article that you've written for us, Diagnosing Lameness, A Science of Uncertainty and an Art of Probability. And that was in issue 39 of this year's Vet Times. And you, um, you alluded again to it a bit there with some case studies. So can you offer us a bit of insight into these and how you've taken your new approaches to those cases? Those cases. Uh, so the, the first one we mentioned there was about osteosarcoma. Mm. And that's to do with until you've not overcommitting ourselves to the client where we're giving them the impression of what is most likely going on, just leaving a gap in the door just in case we need to change it and, and the client's been aware of that. And that's partly for them to just understand that, you know, vet medicine diagnosis is not a perfect science. You know, that's one of the key things. You know, we need to narrow it down. The second example to me is one that I'll never forget. And this is a lovely dog called Jack. And he, he was one that I diagnosed with arthritis of his elbows. He had arthritis, you know. And that's something. He's a seven-year-old Labrador. You know, lots of seven-year-old Labradors have arthritis. He was a bit stiff and he was a bit sore. And he got a bit better on non-steroidals, you know, improved a bit. We'd actually done a CT scan. We'd done some advanced diagnostics and they showed that he had arthritis as well. The thing with Jack was that he didn't get that much better on the non-steroidals. He improved a bit, but he didn't get that much better. And it was only maybe, you know, he came in two or three times. I saw him back. That was the important thing. I saw him back and he wasn't getting better. And I maybe gave him a bit of tramadol and he didn't get that much better either. And I questioned myself about what else could be going on. And then at that time, the owner mentioned, oh, he's got a bit of dandruff as well. All right. And it transpired he was a bit lethargic, not so good getting up and down. And rather than assuming it was arthritis, he wasn't good getting up and down. I thought, right, let's do the blood samples. Let's do the full profile bloods. Let's do the T4 test, TSH. And we diagnosed Jack as being hypothyroid. And hypothyroidism, it's well recognized, it causes dogs to be lethargic. It causes dogs to get a bit of dandruff, a bit of, you know, a bigger tummy, sometimes a bit of hair loss. But another symptom that's maybe not as well recognized in veterinary medicine, maybe more human medicine, but it is in vet as well, is that they can get um, muscular pain. All right. So they can get significant muscular pain. 
And lo and behold, Jack was like a moment of epiphany to me and that you've got to question your diagnosis. Do the tests. We got Jack onto the hypothyroid medication and by the end of the following week, his lameness had improved significantly. And he had arthritis, sure. He had um, you know, elbow disease, without a doubt. He was on the non but the thing that had improved his care and, and his outcome was going on to his hypothyroid meds and making that correct diagnosis of multiple conditions at the same time. So I think Jack's you know, a standout patient for me, and he also um, exemplifies the dangers of the simple diagnosis. You know, that's something we all fall into that trap of veterinary medicine. It's a natural thing to do. We're short of time. The most likely thing normally will be correct. But often there can be other things on the go that play a part as well. We've got to check them out and see what else is going on. Fantastic. Well, a great example. And uh, yeah, fascinating area. And it was a really, really interesting article. So I'll point our listeners towards that, Ross. Thank you so much for joining us. And yes, yeah, some great information there. And we'll see you again soon on the Vet Times podcast, hopefully. Thanks. That's it for Vet Times podcast this time. Thanks to our guest. If you like what you've heard, tell your friends and leave us a review on iTunes. But for now, thanks for listening. See you next time.